With the prospects of a second wave of infection later in the year, many are holding out for the promise of a COVID-19 vaccine. The promise being offered by the World Health Organization, governments, vaccine developers and funders like Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is that a vaccine will eliminate the danger of the virus and release us from lockdowns, social distancing and other measures that have created the biggest disruption to human life and economies seen for over 70 years. But the process of developing safe and effective vaccines using technologies that have never been used on a large scale and doing this within an unprecedented warp speed timeframe is far from straightforward nor is there any certainty that the promise can be delivered. Let's take a closer look. Vaccines are increasingly seen by world authorities as the key strategy for disease prevention, often being prioritized over nutrition, lifestyles and social determinants of health, despite these being established as the primary causes of our increasingly overwhelming disease burdens. The United Nations Sustainable Development Goals are seen by most countries and big businesses as a blueprint for a better and more sustainable future for all. Sustainable Development Goal 3, or SDG 3, is about ensuring healthy lives and promoting well-being for all at all ages. Despite the central role of nutrition in health, there is not a single UN target or indicator that relates to nutrition. The main emphasis is on vaccination, with universal vaccination being the key goal. Given the success of some protocols in intensive care or critical care units, such as the Math Plus protocol being used by a group of US frontline emergency doctors, Vaccines are absolutely not our only option, the last chance cafe, if you like. If we could save the vast majority of those who became seriously ill with COVID, while shielding those who were most vulnerable, nearly all of us could get back to life as normal. On top of that, while the public is being lured into a sense of security over the promise of a vaccine, it's being told little about the uncertainty or the potential risks of developing vaccines using novel technologies that rely on genetic engineering, especially given the risks of doing this in such an unprecedented speed. Contrary to popular views, even the more conventional vaccines are not safe for everyone, the risks likely being greater when approval is given quickly with less testing. Vaccines are also not necessarily effective. For example, last flu season, the US Centers for Disease Control, the CDC, found that vaccine effectiveness, or VE, for the combination flu vaccine was only 25% for 18 to 49 year olds and only 43% for the over 50s. Vaccine developers know they can't develop a vaccine quick enough using existing technologies and approval processes. They therefore are shortening the development and approval process from a typical five or six years minimum to around 18 months using novel technologies or platforms most involving some form of genetic engineering that has never been tested on large populations. They're also running many tasks that they would normally have carried out in sequence at the same time, so compressing the process. 
The technologies for candidate vaccines have been prioritized by vaccine developers since 2018, when the World Health Organization listed disease X as last in its list of priority diseases, the possibility of an unknown infectious disease for which there wasn't any existing solution. Disease X now, of course, does have a name. It's COVID-19. But what the public's not being told is that there's no guarantee you can progress from a genetic engineering technology in a lab to small-scale manufacture and then to mass manufacture with nothing other than very limited clinical trials and still be sure the vaccine is going to work and be safe when scaled up to the billions of doses that are expected to be needed. To get these yet untried candidate vaccines ready quickly enough to short-circuit the approval process, many stages of development need to happen together. This strategy has been the birth child of Bill Gates and the Global Vaccine Alliance, Gavi, that Bill Gates founded around 20 years ago. That means vaccines which are neither proven effective or safe are already being mass manufactured in the hope that they get green-lighted after nothing more than a few months of testing, assuming there's still enough disease out there to see how they work against naturally acquired infection. This means the exact composition of some of the vaccines is already known, but despite large amounts of funding by the taxpayer and the Gates Foundation, which is funding at least seven of the candidates, commercial secrecy means that the public just isn't being told what's in them. For a quick heads up on the kinds of trials being run, preclinical studies are generally performed on animals, including macaque monkeys as the common non-human primate test species. Then you've got phase one trials that are carried out on a small group of 10 to 100 healthy volunteers. If the vaccine passes this test, it goes to phase two trials where it's tested on between 100 to 1,000 people. And then in phase three clinical trials, it's tested on up to 100,000 people. Sometimes there's the need to do separate studies for different groups, such as children or the elderly. According to the World Health Organization's latest update published on the 29th of June, there are currently 132 vaccines under preclinical investigation, with already 17 subject to clinical trials, mainly phase one, but some already in phase two. Among these, there are six primary contending technologies. Only inactivated and live attenuated or inactivated virus technologies are so-called traditional technologies that were used, for example, for the original smallpox or measles vaccines. The rest are novel technologies, most involving different forms of genetic engineering. Most also rely on substances being added to boost the immune system. These are called adjuvants. What they do is hypersensitize the immune system to the antigen, the copy of the part of the virus, such as the spike protein in the case of SARS coronavirus 2. One of the most common adjuvants is aluminium, that's a well-known nerve toxin in its own right. The more traditional active and live attenuated virus vaccines usually rely on the virus being grown on chicken eggs. They're unlikely contenders for mass rollout because they're slow to produce the large volumes that vaccine makers are preparing now to deliver. 
The two kinds of nucleic acid vaccine, based either on DNA or RNA, are the particular vaccines favored by and being funded by Bill Gates. They supply the body with a genetic code to get the body of the vaccinated person to become the vaccine factory, producing the antigen that's a copy of, in the COVID case, of the spike protein that then, assuming all goes to plan, causes the body's immune system to attack the real virus if and when a person becomes infected. That's the theory anyway. The promise of an effective vaccine hinges on the assumption that a vaccine would generate sufficient persistent immunity. This immunity would need to come from the production either of neutralizing antibodies or a potent virus-specific memory T-cell response. Presently, we don't know very much about what happens even following naturally acquired infection, let alone after vaccination with a genetically engineered fragment of the virus. Bill Gates acknowledges that one of the biggest challenges will be ensuring there is enough disease around to allow sufficient numbers to be exposed to generate the necessary data to convince people that the vaccine both works and is safe. While it's quite possible to concertina the normal vaccine development and approval process from the usual minimum of six years to 12 to 18 months, three months of phase three trials as planned by the WHO, government regulators and the vaccine industry just isn't sufficient time to generate robust data on safety or efficacy, let alone enough time to analyze and interpret these data properly, especially if they're going to involve independent researchers and scientists. What it does mean, however, is that as soon as the trial data become available, they should be put in the public domain so they can be subject to independent scrutiny, analysis, and interpretation. That's one of the key objectives in our 10-point vaccine transparency manifesto. What we don't know, the list of 15 big unknowns. It would seem there's a whole lot more that we don't know than we do know. We're going to identify here the 15 key pieces of information we all need if we're going to ensure we're all in a position to give informed consent before vaccines are rolled out on the public. The most important message in this short film is to make sure we work together to ensure that vaccine makers and regulators who've historically had a poor record on transparency are forced to be fully transparent so the public as well as healthcare professionals and others are in a position to make properly informed decisions over vaccination. Informed consent is in fact a legal requirement of any medical intervention. And vaccination during a pandemic shouldn't excuse companies or regulators from being transparent. Will a vaccine actually be needed? Or will the SARS-CoV-2 virus just blow through the population and burn itself out? This is after all what happened with the very closely related coronaviruses, the more deadly yet less contagious SARS in 2003 and MERS in 2012. We just don't know at this stage if the candidate vaccines will work and provide protection against future infection. We also don't know if they will or won't exhibit a problem that's been seen in some other vaccines, most notably the recent Ebola vaccine, of disease enhancement. That's when a vaccine makes the disease even worse than it would have been post-infection when compared with an unvaccinated population. 
Another potential problem, especially among the elderly or those with metabolic diseases like obesity or type 2 diabetes, as well as those on immune-suppressing drugs, is will they be able to mount a strong enough immune response to produce the antibodies or T-cell response required to make them immune? With the prospect of the first vaccine being released on the public in January 2021, there just isn't enough time to know how safe or unsafe the vaccine will be to different groups of people long-term when compared against a true control, such as saline. What's critical is to understand the presence of or any patterns of any immunological, neurological or autoimmune problems that have been associated with some vaccines in the past. While there are six main vaccine technologies in the offing, we still don't know who will be the winners of the race. Given it's highly likely the winners will be genetically engineered, is there something the public's going to be told before the needle gets put into the arm? In Europe, you can't sell a GMO food without telling someone it's genetically modified. So will European authorities be happy to hide this information from the public in a vaccine that bypasses the gut and goes straight into the bloodstream? While the figure of 18 months has been mooted as the fastest time for rollout, there's now news that the first vaccine might be ready as early as January. That's six months less of clinical testing before rollout. Who in which countries are going to be the guinea pigs? What about the timing of other candidates? How extensive will the testing have been on the vaccine that's going to be offered to you and your loved ones have been? Will you or the person giving you the vaccine really know? This is really important for people to know. When it comes to food, food manufacturers are forced to tell people what ingredients are in a food via labeling. With vaccines, you don't generally get to study the label or the information leaflet before the vaccine's given. Some of the adjuvants, preservatives and stabilizers, such as aluminium, mercury, formaldehyde and polysorbate 80, come with their own risks, given that they go straight into the bloodstream, bypassing the incredibly sophisticated detection, selection and assimilation system provided by the human gut. There's also increasing evidence, as shown here by one of the world's foremost authorities on autoimmune diseases, Dr. Yehuda Schoenfield, along with collaborators, that these vaccine ingredients, especially if given routinely, may be associated with increasing our risk of autoimmune diseases. But it's not just about knowing the ingredients that are meant to be in the vaccines. It's also the contaminants and impurities that can often be found in them. This is, of course, an incredibly important message from whistleblower Dr. Judy Mikovic, detailed in her book, The Plague of Corruption. Dr. Mikovic exposed the common contamination of vaccines with retroviruses from animal tissues, something that cost her her job and her gleaming reputation in the scientific community back in 2011, as well as showing how the cocktail of ingredients and impurities could lead to devastating effects, often subject to cover-ups. It's just not known how much of a given population it's considered necessary to vaccinate to hold the infection by SARS-CoV-2 in check to achieve so-called 
herd immunity. The authorities often quote figures of around 70%, but this ignores the fact that it's not just antibodies that can attack the virus, the so-called humoral response. The other part of the adaptive immune system that's also effective are T-cells, and it seems some people, especially younger, healthy people, may have some pre-programmed T-cell activity that's essentially cross-immunity from exposure to other coronaviruses like the common cold. Evidence is emerging that in some communities, just 20% infection rate may be enough for the virus to burn itself out. We just don't know how many vaccines will be released commercially, but it's speculated there will be at least two. The Gates Foundation is funding seven of the front runners. We don't yet know if or how many doses will be needed or if boosters will be needed to maintain immunity. Each dose means more exposure to so-called non-active ingredients, all of which do have physiological effects on the body. We also don't know if different vaccines or dosing will be used for different population groups, such as older people with weaker immune responses, as against younger, healthier people with stronger immune responses. And what about those who have a weaker immune system because they've got a metabolic condition, such as obesity or type 2 diabetes? We don't yet know exactly what the final delivery systems will be for the commercial vaccines. Will they be pre-filled single-dose syringes, single or multi-dose vials? Could there be a nasal spray or even oral doses or micropatches? We touched on this earlier and it's crucial. Just how much of the raw data from the phase one, two, and three clinical trials will be placed in the public domain to allow independent analysis and interpretation of the results. We say in our transparency manifesto that all raw data, anonymized of course, should be released for public scrutiny. We also don't know what will be done by governments to try to maximize vaccine coverage. Will vaccination become mandatory in some countries or regions, or will certain privileges or rights be withheld for those who decline vaccination? We don't know if the public will be informed about the nature and extent of vaccine manufacturers' indemnity by governments, and how they might be compensated in the event of a no-fault vaccine injury. Most people still don't know these schemes operate in most countries and have been the way the vaccine industry has been protected against litigation by those who are vaccine injured since the late 1980s. The last global pandemic was swine flu in 2009 and 10. And there have been hundreds of successful claims for vaccine injury in the UK alone, most of which received very little or no publicity in the media, most of the information having been gleaned through freedom of information requests. Such cases are notoriously difficult to succeed with because cause needs to be proven in court and governments typically weigh in with their best lawyers. The compensation rewards tend to be heavily capped, the cap being just £120,000 per claim in the UK regardless of injuries. Last but not least, unknown number 15. We can see clearly from the updates on the World Health Organization's COVID-19 vaccine landscape website, who are the developers of each of the candidate COVID vaccines? 
but we don't get to see who's funding or who are the beneficiaries of the commercial vaccines. Because of the very high upfront costs, there's a sense that the whole vaccine operation is philanthropic. We're being told this on the media, it's all non-profit for the public good. This may be true in the immediate or short term, but it's certainly not true if COVID doesn't burn out and becomes part of the circulating group of viruses, including flu viruses, that can cause pneumonia-like symptoms in susceptible individuals, especially during the winter season. While there may be some losers, there will be some who've hedged their bets carefully and are set to win hugely. There have been big efforts in the scientific publishing community to make sure that any conflicts of interest are declared given the murky history of corrupt science. So why now do we see fit to not ensure full transparency? Surely there's never been a more important time for transparency? Bill Gates says, the world is creating this vaccine in a historically fast timeline. But it's the unprecedented levels of funding by the Gates Foundation, which is now also the single largest donor to the World Health Organization, that's making this happen. Can Gates really afford to fail? For some, this makes Bill Gates a hero. For others, he's the villain, as he's prepared to expose millions or even billions of people to a potentially grave risk from genetic engineering technologies that have never been tested at scale. Gates upholds that life won't be able to go back to normal until there's a vaccine. He said normality won't return until we have an almost perfect drug to treat COVID-19 or when almost every person on the planet has been vaccinated against coronavirus. He then explains that a drug would need to be around 95% effective to be useful and none are good enough. So that just leaves a vaccine, despite there being no evidence that a vaccine would work. He also says that 70 to 80% of people would need to be vaccinated to achieve herd immunity. As we mentioned earlier, we know that the other important coronavirus that causes the common cold is held in check in human populations at much lower levels of herd immunity, maybe as low as 20%. Bill Gates also thinks that kids should be vaccinated for COVID as newborns. As we hope you've seen, there are a lot of unanswered questions, 15 at least. As the weeks and months pass, we'll have more answers. We'll all have a clearer picture of how much of a solution vaccines might or might not provide. But history tells us that we shouldn't be complacent. We shouldn't expect to receive some of these answers unless we ask or demand answers to these important questions. We'll need to push hard and demand action from our elected representatives. Some have already sold out to the public. They've yet to see how the absence of transparency around the planned mass medication with products made using novel genetic engineering technologies interferes profoundly with our ability to exercise informed consent and our fundamental human rights. Our ask is a simple one. Please download a copy of our 10-point vaccine transparency manifesto and send it to your elected representatives and ask them to get behind the manifesto, to ask questions in the House, to push forward an agenda for full transparency so that we, the people, can exercise our right to properly informed consent. Then ask as many of your friends and contacts to do the same. 
Thank you.